Today, uh, Mel has actually asked that we complete our uh, series on transitions, which is really about transitions of leadership. And when the boss says you should preach that, who am I going to argue with him? So welcome to the third week in the series. Um, And it's a series that aims to help us as a church to draw on the Bible's wisdom in times of leadership change. So already we've looked at uh, you know, the transition from Moses as the leader of God's people to Joshua. We've looked at uh, Elijah uh, to Elisha. And this week we move forward into the New Testament where we see this young church at Corinth struggling with their grasp of Christian leadership. And it's kind of tempting to think that going through a transition of leadership from John to Mal is somehow special or or remarkable. It's something that should be this big deal. It's a major speed bump for us of some kind, but it's not. See, Christian churches change their leaders pretty often, and they always have. Uh, This is not such a big deal because Jesus Christ is is actually the leader of our church. Uh, He's in charge. And so the Christians in Corinth, uh, to whom Paul is writing, they are a young church, probably about 10 years old at the time of writing, and they have experienced many changes and uh, multiple leaders during these formative years. And so I think we can actually learn a whole bunch from them. Uh, At the beginning of the letter, we read that already Paul, Apollos, and Cephas have all visited Corinth and they've made some significant gospel impact. But there are other leaders there as well, local leaders who would probably will have been appointed by Paul. And if you read through to chapter 16 of the letter, you read that Stephanus has a significant role as a leader in the church. And he's supported by two other guys who have great great names, Fortunatus and Archaicus. So they got all of these leaders, they're used to shifts and transitions in leadership, but there is a problem. There is a problem of leadership in Corinth, and that's actually the reason that Paul has written this letter. You see some people from Chloe's house, I don't know who Chloe is, but she's got a house and people meet there. They have gone and they've actually said to Paul, there is a problem here. And that's why that letter began the way it did back in chapter 1. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you all agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. This is a pretty strong opening to the letter, right? Then he continues, My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. So what's going on there in Corinth? Turns out that people in the church have kind of picked their favorite leader and split up into factions and little cliques around each of the leaders. So some have chosen the Apostle Paul. Uh, He's the one writing the letter. He was the first who came to that part of Greece and told them the message of Jesus Christ. So some, we're, we're with Paul. But there's some others, and they've chosen Cephas. Now, this guy Cephas is actually the Apostle Peter. Whenever Paul talks about Peter, he calls him Cephas. And, um, you know, like Peter, he's like the leader of all the apostles. So he's like, he's a big guy. He's come through Corinth. And once again, some guys are saying, we're with him. 
there's another bunch, and they prefer the style of Apollos. Uh, he, he was a Jew uh, born in Alexandria in northern Egypt, and he has a reputation as a very eloquent speaker, He's a very powerful speaker. He's well-versed in the classic arts of rhetoric. You can read about him in chapter 18 of the book of Acts if you want to, but he'd come from Ephesus and ended up in Corinth, where he had <coughs> excuse me, a great impact for the kingdom. Um, we know that when Paul is writing this letter, he's actually said to Apollos, look, Apollos, I want you to go back to Corinth. You could do so much good there, Apollos. And Apollos is going, not yet. I'm not ready to go back. So yeah, there's kind of backstory there. There's another faction, a fourth faction in Corinth, and they are claiming that their only leader is Jesus Christ, which kind of sounds like the right answer, doesn't it, um, in the midst of all of that mess. But it seems to me that there is something wrong with this faction who are calling themselves, we only follow Jesus. That's why they're listed with these other factions. They're not kind of held up as the shining lights. Yeah, these are the guys who've got it right. <coughs> Instead, perhaps with a little bit of pride and snobbery, they were so enamored with the Spirit's work, the Holy Spirit's prophetic speech and utterances, which were perceived to have come from Jesus, that that was why this group were a bit off track. They, they were saying, yeah, we're, we're the Jesus guys, but we only listen to the words that have come direct from the Spirit. So maybe that was the reason why they're sort of collected alongside you know, the obvious wrong answers of Paul and Peter and, uh, and Apollos. So it's a pretty sorry situation uh, that Paul is addressing in chapter 3. And what they really need in Corinth is a mature view of leadership with multiple leaders and leadership transitions. So that's the situation Paul addresses in the beginning of chapter 3. And let's hear, first of all, how Paul says, you guys have a problem when it comes to leadership. So I'm at verse 1. You might want to follow along. Make sure you've got your Bible open. Uh, <coughs> Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? So the Corinthians have an immature view of leadership and they need to grow in their maturity. How does Paul know this? Because there is jealousy and there is quarreling. Literally, the words are there is heat and there is strife. There is envy and there is kind of passion that's, that's blowing up into these great big arguments. And this is the evidence that, spiritually speaking, they're still little babies. And I think for the intelligentsia in Corinth... <laughs> That was a bit of an insult. Corinth in relation to Athens was a little bit like Brisbane in relation to Melbourne. Okay, uh, kind of, you know, not quite so cultured, but way more fun or something like that. Okay, not as academic, but don't you dare tell them that, right? Paul's assessment is going to sting for the Corinthians. And to top it off, Paul says that their immaturity indicates a weak grasp of the Holy Spirit. If we were going to dive into a whole series on the book of 1 Corinthians, we'd need to explore this idea in, in much more depth. But very simply, 
the Corinthians prided themselves in their various expressions of the Holy Spirit. But Paul's constant critique of them is, you guys fail to grasp the basics of the Spirit. You fail to demonstrate the real evidence of his work in your lives. You can see there are kind of polar opposites that Paul sets up in these opening verses. Okay, There's living by the Spirit at one end of the spectrum, and at the other end there is worldliness. Okay, So either you Corinthians will be characterized by the work of the Holy Spirit or you are characterized by the flesh, is the words that he uses. So Paul is addressing the Corinthians as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, but their bickering and their disunity says, you are still babies. I wonder for a moment if we held that same, same scale up to ourselves. How do you reckon we'd go? Do you think that we're spiritually mature? Or are we still babies? Day by day in our lives, is there the evidence of the Spirit? Just worth pondering that for a moment, just for ourselves. In Corinth, Paul is saying, look, instead of being enamoured by the human abilities or the popularity of your leaders, you've got to grow up. You need a mature view of Christian leadership. And that's why he continues as he does in verse 5. You might want to follow along. After all, what is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it. But God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. So how should the Christians view their leaders? Verse 5, they're called servants, and in verse 9, they are co-workers in God's service. Leaders of the Christian church are called servants. They have assigned tasks. Uh, Paul's got a farming thing going here. There's a farming metaphor. And, and in the farm, there is a specialization of labor, right? Some plant seeds, some others water the seeds, and, and, and they tend them as they grow. Both, the, both those roles are important, but it is God who gives the growth. Okay, So Christian ministry is like that as well, right? There is, there is work to be done, and God actually depends on the working of the servants. Um, he gives the growth, right? So without the workers, there is unlikely to be any gospel growth. Without God, there will be no growth. The two come together. And so that's why I think verse 9 actually should better be rendered co-workers with God, together with God and the various workers, the harvest grows. That label servant, not a particularly glorious label to have if you are a leader in a church, but it fits, right? Servants are not particularly important or, or significant in their own right, but they bear 
the authority of their master. Okay? Their dignity is tied to the importance of their master. Let me try and illustrate this. You have a strategy for all this? I have the beginnings of one. What is it? I'm going to try that for a little while. Listen up. Our ground game isn't working. We're going to put the ball in the air. If we're going to walk into walls, I want us running into them full speed. We're going to raise the level of public debate in this country. And let that be our legacy. That sound all right to you, Josh? I serve at the pleasure of the President of the United States. Yeah? I serve at the pleasure of the President. I serve at the pleasure of President Bartlett. Obi? I serve at the pleasure of the President. Good. Let's get in the game. So there's some people here who are going, yeah, and others are going, what's that about, right? This is the best TV drama ever in the whole wide world. It's called The West Wing. Uh, And and here's a simple point, okay? The the guys that you've just seen, they are like the the staff who work for the American president. And as staff, they actually have very little importance or, or, or even concern for themselves. They are his servants in that sense, but... They bring with them all the dignity of the office of the president. And very much the same is true for the leaders of the Christian church. They are respected because of their master and their commission. And yet they are merely servants, just like the rest of us. They come, they go, they have their particular role to play. Each one is entirely dependent upon God to bring growth for the growth of the kingdom. That is the mature view of Christian leadership in the local church. But Paul has, in fact, another very important point to make. And to make it, he needs to move from his farming metaphor to the building metaphor, right? So we're at verse 9. You see it there. Paul writes, we are co-workers in God's service. We've talked about that. Then he says, you are God's field... God's building. And that's where the metaphor moves from farming to building. It's when I start to get really excited because we can talk about architecture and things like that. That metaphor change enables Paul to say now, build with care. Crop growing requires, you know, lots of diligence and hard work for sure, but the correlation between the output, you know, and and what you put in is kind of a little bit arbitrary sometimes. But building right? There is so much responsibility on the builder. The link is direct. Okay, so Paul wants the Corinthian Christians to build well, to build carefully. So that's where we're up to in verse 10. Watch how this metaphor plays out, okay? Verse 10, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. In Greek, architect is the word, okay? Wise builder. And someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, 
their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So the first thing to notice here is that Paul is still addressing the Corinthian Christians, all of them. The end of verse 10, he says, each one should build with care, each one. Okay, The call to build well is not addressed to Stephanus or to any of the local leaders on their own. It's addressed to the whole church. Each one means each and every one should build. It doesn't matter if you're nine or you're 99 years old. It doesn't matter if you're a brand new Christian or if you've been doing this for a long time. It doesn't matter if you're a worker or a student or you're doing your own thing. Each of us builds. As we pause and think about that, here's a question for you. Do you know what your purpose is in belonging to St. Andrew's? What's your purpose? I want to ask us that question because I think it's good to help us identify, well, how am I involved in this building thing that's going on, right? It's good to know, am I a carpenter or am I a bricklayer? Am I a decorator? Am I a painter? Am I something else? Okay, And if we really got into Paul's metaphor here, it looks like we're going to need some goldsmiths and some silver workers and jewelers and carpenters and hay balers and makers of bricks with straw, I guess. So verse 10, each one means each and every one should build with care, with skill, with wisdom, with expertise. And the reason for that is that there is a reckoning of the final quality of the building. Sooner or later, everyone is going to know what kind of job we've done here. Anyone know the name of this building? What is it? It's the Opal Tower, right? A year ago, no one had ever heard of this place. This is the block of units out in Homebush that has started to fail because of substandard work that no one, well, it was never detected or maybe it was never called out. It was, oh, that's sort of good enough, that'll work. Maybe the concrete wasn't right. Maybe the steel reinforcing was a bit shonky. But that was okay because we covered it up with really nice-looking structure and cladding, sorry. And, and all of those apartments, they were sold very quickly. Sadly now, we know that this building has found to be defective. It is structurally unsound. And the owners of that building have suffered great loss financially. And so if we're to follow Paul's metaphor here, we have been given a sure foundation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the reason that we're here. Without the truth that God has come to us in Jesus, that he has died in our place on the cross, that he has defeated death and sin, that he has risen and ascended to glory and rules right now, without that, we're just building on Sandy Swamp. But on that foundation, we are secure, we are strong, and we are sure. We only build on him. And at the end of the project, we will be rewarded according to the quality of the work that we've done. 
that's exactly what it says in verses 13 through 15. But because we're kind of very good Reformed Christians around here, we get really uncomfortable with this idea that God will actually look at what we've done and assess it and reward us according to the quality of our work. Notice this. This passage is not about be really nice and you get to go to heaven. It doesn't say that at all. Paul is not saying we're saved on the basis of the good things that we've done on our own merits. Not what it says at all. Instead, do you notice that the Christian who ends up with nothing because it all got burned up or because they never ever built anything at all in the first place, that person is still saved, according to verse 15. It's just that they've got nothing to show for their life. So the big question is, okay, how do I build with my life so that what I build lasts into eternity, so that it brings glory to God? And the answer surely must be in the passage. Surely it is connected to verses 16 and 17, which follow. But before I go there, just for a moment, I want to pause and remind us what we've seen already, what Paul has already told the Corinthians and us about a mature view of leadership. A mature and Holy Spirit-formed Christian is not troubled by changes in leadership, whether their favourite is Paul or Apollos or Peter or anybody else, because they know we are all servants and co-workers with God. St Andrew's leadership transition does not all depend on Mal. Actually, it's not so much about him as it's about all of us. We have a part to play. We have a job to do because we've got a shared project building on the one foundation, that is Jesus Christ. We all help each other do our bit. We all use our gifts in our own special way as best as we possibly can. But what we need to do together is have our sleeves rolled up. We need to get in the game, as Leo says. I said just a few moments ago, verses 16 and 17, surely must be telling us about the building work that lasts into eternity through whatever testing that comes, even on the day of Christ's return. So all of this talk of leadership and building gets focused now on the single truth that we are building God's temple, God's people. So verse 16, Paul writes, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for the, God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. So we already know from verse 11, the foundation upon which we build is Jesus Christ and we know now that the building itself is the church represented as the successor of the temple in Jerusalem. It's, it's the church, the people that is built up. That's makes so much sense now of why bickering about leaders is so immature and so childish. Every time there is division in the church, that's an attack on the building itself. It turns out, hey, we're building God's church, the place where he personally lives in his Holy Spirit. This is sacred. This is holy. This matters to God. And since we're the building where God lives, we should be very careful how we build. So at, at this climax, at the, at the end of 
this extended farming and then building metaphor is this powerful truth. And it's this, together we are building up God's people. That's what we're doing here. We're servants together and it's people work that will endure. And no matter what particular role God has gifted you with among his people, give yourself fully to it, right? Invest your life in people. Give that your best. That's what will endure into eternity. The work you do in the lives of people. When you introduce people to Jesus, that will matter into eternity. You go around to some little old lady's place and do her garden to show her the love of Jesus. That is introducing her to Jesus. That matters. When you help someone grow in their faith as a Christian or maybe you walk with them through some really difficult things, right, that work has enduring importance. That really matters. If you're a, if you're a youth group leader, if you are a kid's space or scripture teacher, a small group leader, that is awesome. That's the stuff that is going to so matter forever. If it feels hard sometimes and you kind of get you know, unmotivated, and, oh man, I just don't feel like it tonight, I'm tired, right? No, no, go for that because that matters. That is the work that will endure and bring glory to Jesus. Sometimes we kind of you know, glorify some jobs, you know, the kind of the frontline work of you know, whatever it is, but maybe you're more of a praying person. Maybe you would see, yeah, my sort of gifts and the way I work is I'm, I'm a supporter. I'm a server, a, a, you know, like a backstopper, a helper, whatever it is. All work for the gospel matters and it is important. Let me tell you about a, name who's, uh, a lady whose name's Caroline. She is absolutely passionate for scripture teaching in school. She loves it and she can't do it at all. And so when her local church's team of SRE teachers go down to the school each week, she goes to the church and she prays. She prays for them while they're teaching every week. And uh, another team from her church said, well, we want to go out into the neighbourhood and we want to tell everybody about church. We're going to invite them to come along. And uh, while they went out to invite people to church, she just went straight to church and she prayed for them. And for as long as those people were out doing the thing, she was in church and she was praying. Hardly anybody knew that. Um, No one imagined that she would possibly be doing that, but God knows that. And on the last day, when everybody's work of building is assessed, the value of what she does will become clear to all. It'll be evident when Jesus returns. I think she had a mature view of Christian leadership. Just as Paul had instructed the Corinthians, and regardless of her personal circumstances and situation, she was building very carefully on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And every time a new kid came to church, every time a new family would turn up to church, you would see her joy, for she kind of prayed them in there. It was a beautiful thing to see. I think most of her joy actually was shared between her and Jesus as she prayed. Lovely to see. As our church transitions from John to Mal, let's keep building as fellow servants and co-workers with God. Will you pray with me?
And God and Father, we thank you for the incredible privilege of being called to work with you in your field or to build your building, the home where you live. Father, thank you for that remarkable privilege. We pray that you would help us together to build well, to build what will endure, to see your kingdom grow. Help us by your Holy Spirit's work in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Very well. Thanks, Drew. Uh, we've got, because of time, I think we'll just have time for one or two questions. Here's one. Does argument and division always demonstrate infancy in the spirit? I'm thinking about foundational arguments such as the councils of Nicaea and Chalcedon. <laughs> Let's simplify that. Um, it, are there things that Christians I bet I know who wrote that question, Tom. <laughs> yeah, should Christians actually argue about certain things? Yeah, um, it's totally good for Christians to argue about things. And if you do that in a really constructive way, that is great. That can actually demonstrate your maturity in the spirit. It's when you get into immature arguments, like, you know, this leader's better than that leader, that's not a demonstration of the spirit. So actually, we should be able to disagree respectfully. We can actually learn together as we hear from one another. Oh, different views. Let's work that out together. Okay, so um, nothing wrong with a bit of Christian disagreement. It's how you approach it that will demonstrate your maturity and the Spirit's work through that. Okay. Uh, one about denominations. There's a couple of them. I'll give you one. Here, uh, how is a church in Corinth following different planters and waterers and tenderers any different to Christians now choosing between denominations? Yeah, it's a really hard one. I don't know how different that actually is, Tom. Um, sometimes different denominations of the church have developed out of radically different understandings of the truth of the gospel. Uh, you know, there's some guys who are saying, we're totally for this over there, and when you look at your Bible, you go, how does that work? Uh, and so it's a difference, a fundamental difference of the truth of the Bible and the gospel, okay? That's really sad when that happens, but some different denominations are about that. Other different denominations are about preferences. We like to govern ourselves this way as a church, whereas we like to govern ourselves that way as a church. It's not kind of like differences of truth, it's just different preferences. And so in that kind of sense, I don't see a great problem with different denominations. It's kind of different diversity, you know. It's not necessarily a bad thing. So I don't know that the jump from, you know, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos to different denominations is necessarily a straight line kind of jump. Okay. Yeah. And one super practical one, how can we at 7pm practically help in this season of transition? What an awesome question. Mm. What an awesome question. Um, I think it takes us really to the punchline of the sermon, actually, doesn't it? Okay, how can we help? Well, now that we have in our heads what mature Christian leadership looks like, we do it. We act as the mature Christian people by serving together, being God's co-workers, and building his people that way. So that's, what a great question. I love it. I think we should finish with that. We should. In fact, we should continue to do that by praying, and Mark's going to lead us.